That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. But he was at table, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with him gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord, you may be seated. This morning, uh, Toby Kurth will be preaching today for Pastor Sam, who is on a very well-deserved vacation with Sua. And for many of you, uh, Toby does not need an introduction. He's been a friend of Wellspring for many years now. Uh, but for those who do not know him, Toby is the lead pastor of Christ Church San Francisco. And we have had the privilege of being sister churches with Christ Church and much of that is due in part to uh, Toby and um, his faithful and loving um, care for us as a church. So um, please welcome Toby as he preaches God's word to us this morning. Thank you, Connor. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this incredible story on the road to Emmaus. We thank you for the power of story in all of scripture and that you reveal yourself to us, Lord. So I pray simply today that you would reveal yourself to us more, that the life of Jesus would become ever more real for us, that the love of Jesus would become ever more sacred to us, and that you would change us as a result of being together in your word today. Help me to clearly and faithfully proclaim it and help us all to be challenged, encouraged, and pointed more and more to Jesus as a result. 
We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we all know there's a, there's a power in a good story. And if you think about the basic elements of a good story, you have a hero, you have a crisis, you have some kind of climax of activity, and then you have that, that resolution in the end. And I think the reason that the, the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus, is often called the greatest story ever told is because of those exact elements. You, you, you don't get a greater hero than Jesus Christ. God made man. You don't get a greater crisis than all of broken humanity needing salvation. You don't get a greater sacrificial act than Christ himself solving that by going to the cross, by laying his life down for us. You see the passion and the incredible um, intensity of the story in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Where Jesus is sweating blood and in anguish over what he has to do, but yet he's resolute on doing it. And you see him defeat Satan and evil and death itself in the resurrection. This is a story that in so many ways uh, is so powerful because it resonates deeply with our humanity. We we know that humanity is broken. We know that there's some greater purpose outside of ourselves, something more that we're called to, and we see it in Jesus. And the question for each and every one of us is, how is that story shaping our story? I want you to imagine yourself on the road to Emmaus, and I put up a photograph here. That's the modern day road to Emmaus, which you can still go and, and walk today. But we see these two disciples, and, and they're walking, and it tells us that they're sad. And it tells us that they're confused because they thought that Jesus was the one, and they're, they're not sure. And you have Jesus himself pursuing them in their sadness, pursuing them in their confusion, and bringing clarity to them, showing the story. Imagine what that must have been like. Imagine if you were on that road, this story told by Jesus, opening up all of Scripture, is going to interrupt the lives of these two disciples forever, isn't it? Changes forever the way they view themselves, changes forever the way they view God, changes forever the way they view Jesus. So much so that when they get to Emmaus and they've been warning Christ, the reason they encourage him likely not to continue on the road is because we know what the ancient Near East is like in that time period, right? You don't travel on a road in darkness and you certainly don't travel on a road in darkness by yourself. It's dangerous. It's largely the reason they likely encourage Jesus to stay with them. And yet, when Jesus is revealed and the fullness of the story is revealed, not only are their hearts burning within them, not only are they experiencing great joy, but what do they do? They immediately get back on that road. They take that story that's changed them, that's shaped them, and they want to share it with others. First, their community, the original 11 and the rest of the disciples, and then they learn from Jesus they're going to be part of sharing that story for everyone. So the question we're going to walk through today, we're going to look at their road to Emmaus. And like them, we're going to walk through who Jesus is and how it shapes us. And then look at then their desire to come back, to take that story and to go and do something with it. We're going to look at what they did. And we're going to ask ourselves a question. What does that story do to us? What are we to do with the story once we believe it, once we understand it, once we get a hold of it? And the main idea I want to really drive home today is that the story of Jesus, his story defines your story. We find our greatest sense of identity. We find our greatest sense of who we are and what we're called to be. We find what it means to be truly human, redeemed image bearers of God. We find all of that in the story of Jesus himself. So let's first look at here, the the road there, at Jesus' story. I find this fascinating. I was sharing this earlier that that, uh, what struck me most in preparing for this message is that Jesus himself uses scripture to teach the disciples about himself. If there was ever anyone that's walked the earth that wouldn't need to use scripture to point to himself and teach people about himself, it would be Jesus. And yet he uses the word. 
He used the revelation of God to show it. And it drives home how much more important is it for us to use the word of God ourselves? Do we look at this word of God as an incredible gift, as something that reveals to us God's character? And what I love about the Bible too is it's God revealing himself in story, isn't it? It's not a series of, uh, of propositions of truth. It's not a series of doctrinal summaries. What is it? It's an incredible story about how God himself redeems and renews and restores all of humanity, about how God continually intercedes in broken and violent human history to point forward towards love and wholeness and forgiveness in Jesus. God is revealing himself through story, and Jesus himself is using scripture to reveal himself. What might he have done? What would you do? How would you use all of scripture on a road? It probably would have been about a two and a half hour trek, maybe a little bit longer. How would you use the story of scripture to reveal to everyone who Jesus is? What what might what, what he've done? Could have started in Genesis 1 and 2, right? Where this incredible creation story of humanity created to image God, to be like God, to live with God, to live for God. This idea that every human being is an image bearer of God entitled to dignity and to worth and to honor and to love. But that all comes crashing down in Genesis 3 when humanity decides to rebel against God, when Adam and Eve go their own way. But even in the midst of that great tragedy and crisis, what does God do? He promises that one day a seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head of the serpent and redeem and renew all of mankind. And Jesus would say, and that's the Messiah. That's the one that has come, pointing to himself. And then a little bit farther forward, we know the story. He might have gone to Abraham where God told Abraham that not only was it just going to be a seed of the woman, but it was going to be one of his descendants would be the very seed that would not only be used to redeem the Jewish people, but would be used to to witness to all the nations, that every tribe, tongue, and nation would come to know God's plan of redemption and salvation through Jesus Christ himself. And then we see a little bit farther forward, you have all these beautiful Psalms written by and about David, but also David writing these Psalms about a greater king that would come. David would have known his own failures. David would have known his own weakness. And so David himself rejoiced that one day there would come this forever king that would be perfect and just and loving and everything he knew himself not to be. And then we see in the prophets all these things. We see in Isaiah 53, this incredible prophecy, very, very specific about what was going to happen to Jesus and how God would use Jesus um, to redeem and to renew and to restore. There's over 300 references to the Messiah in the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? 300 references of God pointing forward to the hope that they're going to have. We've been working through the book of Daniel uh, in church and thinking through, you think about it for a moment, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in a city of Jerusalem that was the sole center of their culture and everything they knew in life. And that city was overtaken by a brutal siege, one that's described in the book of Lamentations in Jeremiah where like it wasn't, it was like, as bad as any scene we'd see today. It talks about how the, the baby's um, tongues are sticking to the roof of their mouths because their moms can't produce enough milk to feed them. It alludes to cannibalism. It alludes to absolute hunger and strife. And in the midst of all of that devastation, you have King Nebuchadnezzar kidnaps, takes away all the leading nobles' kids as teenagers, brings them all the way to Babylon and puts them in a three-year indoctrination program to teach them how to worship the gods of the Babylonians, gives them Babylonian names, gives them Babylonian culture, and tries to give them a Babylonian life to completely supplant what they would have. How would a teenager survive that kind of colonizing power? Well, they knew the story. 
They knew this deeper story of what God was doing. And so we see this refrain in Daniel over and over again where he says there is a God in heaven. And this main principle of there is a God in heaven shaped him. But what we also see in the book of Daniel is it wasn't just a a faith in a generic God. It was a faith in a very particular work that God was going to do. So in Daniel chapter 2, there's this, again, a messianic prophecy of the kingdom of God extending to the very ends of the earth. And in Daniel chapter 7, we're given this incredible vision of the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, of the Messiah coming to redeem and to renew and to restore. And imagine what it would have been like to be hearing these words from Jesus himself and that moment when Jesus reveals that he is the Messiah that he is the forever prophet, the forever king, that he is the forever priest that is always interceding before us, as Thomas prayed earlier from the book of Hebrews, right? That's who he is. They're teaching us about who Jesus is. Do we know the story? Are we amazed by the story? Does the story continue to shape us? You know, 2 Timothy tells us that all scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us what to do that is right. But the primary way it does that is by showing us who Jesus is, where we see simultaneously that, yeah, we're broken, we're fallen, we're in trouble, but we see in Jesus that we are also forgiven, loved, saved, secure. We're made dearly loved sons and daughters. We're adopted into God's family. Diane Chen has an excellent commentary on the Gospel of Luke, and she writes this. The story of two disciples encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus moves from obtuseness to recognition, confusion to clarity, despondency to joy. These guys were walking away from Jerusalem, not sure which end was up, not sure what was going to happen, not sure who Jesus even was anymore, and they were, they were unclear, they were confused, and they were despondent. And their encounter with Jesus gives them recognition of the one true Messiah, gives them clarity about who he is and who they are, and it gives them incredible joy. Jesus pursued them on the road to teach them about who he is, and Jesus does the exact same thing with every single person in this room. And if you're still in the midst of that journey, Jesus is pursuing you, and he's showing you who he is, and we need the same journey that these guys had. Because as we get this bigger vision of who Jesus is, we see that he is Lord, he is creator, he is in absolute authority over everything. No greater power has ever existed on earth than Jesus Christ himself. Everything that was created was created through him. Everything is sustained in him. We see all these incredible teachings throughout the entirety of scripture, don't we? And yet we know that it's not just raw power. It's power directed at you to love you and to serve you. And in the Gospel of Luke, this is Luke 24, obviously, but if we see these encounters that Jesus has all throughout the Gospel of Luke, and they teach us not just about his incredible power, but they teach us about how he uses his power, always to love and to serve, and to love and to serve the least to the greatest, the rich and the poor, the outcasts and the rulers. Jesus is revealing himself to serve all of them. One of the most powerful encounters in the Gospel of Luke is when Jesus encounters a leper. And this leper, if you think about this for a while, leprosy in that day and age, this person was told to have an advanced case of leprosy. So was probably living ostracized and in isolation for maybe decades, maybe 20 plus years, not just of of not having hygiene or the ability to bathe or the ability to eat regularly. So lepers would have been like largely starving. They would have been completely excluded from all of society. They would have had no human touch and limited human contact. And maybe for decades. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be in that leper? 
And he hears that there's one that might be able to heal him. And so this leper is willing to step into this village. And if you look at the ancient religious laws and customs that were in operation at that point in time, that leper would have been required to step into this village. And every step he took, he would have been required to yell, unclean. So if someone wasn't horrified by his look, they would have heard his voice and you like would have heard shrieks, children running, a horrible scene. The priests during that day oftentimes carried rocks in their pocket in case they encountered anyone unclean so they could throw the rocks and drive that person out of the village. And yet this leper was willing to take that risk and to go see Jesus because he might be able to heal him. And Jesus sees that faith and heals the leper. But mind you, again, this leper probably had no human contact, no human touch, not a hug, not a kiss, not a handshake in maybe 10 or 20 years. And we see the power of Jesus in his healing, but look at the manner in which he heals him. What does he do? He reaches out and he touches him. And instead of the uncleanness of the leper transferring to Jesus, instead of like the ostracization of the leper transferring to Jesus, the incredible power and holiness of Jesus makes that man clean, but also restores him to community, restores him to humanity. Jesus is bringing that man from absolute devastation into absolute restoration. Imagine too, you know, we see not just that end of the spectrum of the, of the ostracized leper, but Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a traitor to his own people, right? He's collecting taxes for the Roman government. He is a tool of oppression in that community. If there's someone in that community that thinks they're not worthy of being loved by God or forgiven by God, it's probably the one that's oppressing God's people as an implement of a foreign occupying power. And yet Jesus doesn't just tell Zacchaeus that he's forgiven. What does he do? He goes and he dines with him. And you guys know this, I mean, table fellowship was an intimate thing. Who you invited around your table said everything about your identity. Whose table you sat around said everything about your identity and theirs. And yet Jesus doesn't just forgive Zacchaeus. He restores him and he, he, he befriends him and he loves him and he cares for him. In every one of these encounters, we learn so much, not just about what God's power is, but we see who Jesus is and how he encounters and treats other people. And it reveals him to our hearts as we read these stories, as we see who he is and we know that we are never out of reach of God's love and grace, that God never looks at us and sees us as, as people that he is regretting having to love. He looks at you as a son or a daughter that he's delighted to love. It's a wonderful reflection on this in uh, Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy. And he says this, we must understand that God does not love us without liking us like it's through gritted teeth, as Christian love, in quotes, is sometimes thought to do. Rather, out of eternal freshness of his perpetually self-renewed being, the Heavenly Father cherishes the earth and each human being upon it. The fondness, the endearment, the unstingingly affectionate regard of God toward all his creatures is the natural outflow of who he is at his core. God is love. Willard goes on to say that sometimes we can think that it's difficult for God to love us in our brokenness, that it's difficult for us to experience God's love, but we'd be better off thinking of it as it's impossible for God not to love you because God is love and he's adopted you through Christ into his family. And so he can't help but love you. Now, this is where I think in Western culture in America in particular, sometimes we settle for just the intellectual uh, part of our faith and doctrine's important, but what's doctrine supposed to do? It's supposed to drive you to a deeper experience of God's love so that he can transform you and then work through you to love and to transform others. 
So we could probably get together and most people in this room could give some kind of definition about God's love and God's power. Could give some kind of definition about how you believe, at least intellectually, that God's love for you is unconditional. But are you experiencing God's love for you is unconditional? There's this paradigm the church has used in history called the head, the heart, and the hands. And so if we think about this, that does begin in the life of the mind, right? It begins in the head. What does God's unconditional love and power mean to me? But it can't stay in the head. It's got to drop to the heart where, where I begin to believe at a deeper level that God actually really loves me. And I begin to trust in his love and in his care for me. And then it goes to the hands. It goes to the life. It goes to how I'm living. I'm living as one that's deeply, unconditionally, thoroughly loved. That, that God cannot love me less because he loves me infinitely. That God loves me now and for all eternity. And so I, I, I'm confident in his presence. My fear for us, though, so often in our, in our current cultural moment, especially as we see all this stuff going on with deconstruction and whatever else is supposed to be cool these days, um, is that our lens, my lens, for looking at God is often circumstantial. It's often I, whether or not I believe God is good is a direct result of the circumstances that are surrounding me. And this is where I think the international church is so essential to us. I had the opportunity to lead Christ Church, a team from us, um, to Mashenica, which is the village we partner with you guys in supporting this last June. And I was reflecting, I've been uh, going there for about 11 years now. It's my ninth time in the community and learn so much every time I'm there, sitting at the feet of these volunteers. And when we say volunteers, if hands at work is new to you, even if it's old to you, volunteers is like an inadequate word. Care workers doesn't quite communicate to it. These are mostly older, many of them widows themselves or older women who are slightly above the starvation line because of the love of Jesus laying down their life to serve their orphan and widowed neighbors who are below the starvation line. This is people that have an absolute scarcity serving like they have an abundance. And so often in our country, we have an abundance and we have a scarcity mindset and don't serve. So I'm there and being challenged, but the love of Jesus gets bigger for me while I'm there. I would say the governing paradigm in rural Malawi is there's a faith that God will be with them in the midst of their struggles. And I think too often in my own life and too often in our country, it's this. I'll have faith in God if he keeps me from struggle. And so when struggle comes, when things happen in our life, when circumstances don't turn out the way we think they're going to turn out, you, you know, the tragedy might come or you might lose a job that you dearly wanted or not be able to get a job or not be able to get a spouse, whatever it is, right? There's all kinds of real challenges. And God loves you and knows the number of hairs on your head. He cares about those challenges. But he cares about them in a the context of being willing to be with you in the midst of them. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about comfort. And I think oftentimes, again, comfort we think of as the absence of struggle. The Apostle Paul defines it as God's presence with you in the midst of struggle. Do we know these stories deeply enough to own them? I'll give you one more story about how I got schooled by an 11-year-old boy in rural Malawi and how it revealed to me um, why this partnership in Malawi was so essential for my own ability to love and serve Jesus and my own ability to love and serve the city of San Francisco and the wider Bay Area. It's what uh, George Sneeman, the founder of Hands at Work, always says, the, it, we need the widows and orphans more than they need us to give us a broader perspective on life. And we see that play out in the scriptures as well. But I'm sitting there um, and with these two young boys. I think they were like 10, one of them, I think the other, other one was seven. 
Um, it actually can be hard to tell the age of the kids until you're told because many of them have been malnourished since birth. And so they look years younger than they actually are. So these two boys are here. Both parents were, um, died. And their, their go-go, their grandmother is raising them. And she's got an ailment in her feet where she can't walk very well. And so she can't be on her feet for most of the day. Um, by God's grace, these kids have the opportunity to go to school uh, and to go to the feeding point, care point that Hands at Work has for them. But in order to do that, they got to get up really early in the morning and go quite a distance away to fetch all the water that their go-go is going to need for that day to cook and to clean and do everything she needs to do. So they're up early and they're going there and they live in this like hut that's no bigger than this um, carpet area right here. Um, they don't have enough food. Um, they don't have regular and great access to, to enough water without going to fetch it at some great distance, as I said. And I'm looking at this just devastated. And Hands at Work that year was doing this theme of the Jesus we know. And the question they were asking in the community is, is the Jesus you know, is the Jesus we know, the same Jesus revealed to us in God's word? And so I, coming with my intellectual framework, thought, I'm not sure, looking at this whole situation, that this little boy has genuine faith in Jesus. So I want to see, why did I have that question? Because again, my lens, if I'm just confessing it to you, is so tied to circumstances. Um, and so I decided I'm going to ask like a, a diagnostic kind of question and figure out where this kid really is. And so I said something like, um, something this dumb. I said something like, uh, with all that's going on in your life and all the struggles and the troubles and losing your parents and all that kind of stuff, um, why do you believe that Jesus is real? And this kid looks at you like I'm an absolute idiot and says, because he is. And then he tells me that when he wakes up in the morning and, and doesn't think he has the strength to go and get the water and do what he needs to do for his day, that he prays and Jesus is with him. And that when he goes and fetches the water and he prays and Jesus is with him, he walks me through every aspect of his day and, and with the refrain of, and, and Jesus is with me. And by the end of it, it's like, okay, I get it. And I was so convicted. Because that's the kind of faith that each and every one of us needs, that no matter what's going on, that he's real. For Daniel, it was there is a God in heaven. For this little boy, it's because he is. Of course he's real. What is it for you? Like, is, Do we have that grounding faith? Do you have something that grounds you in the story of Jesus to believe that he's with you in the midst of everything, no matter what? We, we don't know what our stories are going to bring. We don't get to know that ahead of time, but we do get to know that God is alongside us in the midst of it and that he is incorporating our stories into a larger story of what he's doing with all of humanity. And the more we learn to see that connection, the more we can understand the meaning of life and the better ability we have to find help and healing in the midst of crisis or whatever else we're going to face because of who God is and what he's doing. That's, we could go on and on on that, but that's, that's a little bit of the road to Emmaus experience going deeper into who Jesus is and how that's actually functioning in a hands or in a head, heart, hands way in your life. And if you don't know that story deeply enough where it's riveting to you, where, where it's your heart's burning within you, man, the word of God's right here. Open up the gospel of Luke and pay attention to how Jesus treats people, how he loves them, how he serves them, and pray that God would just overwhelm you with amazement for who Jesus is and that you too get to be a recipient of his love. So secondly, let's look at the road back. So these men go out, and again, they had told Jesus he shouldn't travel anymore at night, and within the moment of finding out who Jesus really is, they can't wait to get back on that road. 
They don't care about the danger. They don't care about the distance. They don't care about anything because their lives have been transformed by the story. And what do they want to do? They want to get back and tell the rest of the disciples, the 11 and the rest of them, that Jesus is real and he's back and it's all true. They can't wait to use this story to encourage others about a greater reality than they're seeing. Again, they don't care about the danger. They didn't want to wait. They could have slept and gone in the morning. Nothing could stop them. They wanted to go right back because they were being reshaped and they wanted to take it to others. So let's look here, picking up from where it was read earlier in Luke 24, at what happens when these guys go. They go and they tell the story to these people. And as they were saying these things, he himself, Jesus, stood in their midst. He said, peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled? He asked them. And why do you doubt? Uh, why does doubt arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Think about that for a moment. He's raised from the dead, and they're still struggling to believe, and he's rebuking them, but he's rebuking them with compassion. He's coming alongside them in the midst of their doubt and showing them who he truly is. He's not affirming their doubt. He's not saying, oh, I get it. You guys don't want to believe in me. No, no. He's saying, oh my goodness, how do you not see this? But with compassion, he comes alongside them and demonstrates who he is. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their uh, joy, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Again, compassionately showing them who he is. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, the whole Old Testament must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance uh, and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. He's telling them he's going to send his Holy Spirit so they can be part of sharing this story, not just in Jerusalem, but to all the nations beyond. And then they get to see this. Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany. He lifted up his hands. And he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising God. They had this incredible encounter that changes absolutely everything about what they think about life, God, themselves, everything. It transforms them thoroughly. And I think sometimes we can be tempted to think that like, man, if I had seen that, then yeah, I would have been transformed too. Right? If I saw Jesus ascend into heaven, I would never doubt him. But is that really true? I mean, I think doubt doesn't come from a place of not adequately knowing and having revealed to us the goodness of who God is. We see that in his word over and over again. And Jesus himself taught his disciples in the gospel of John. This is a, a mysterious passage to me. He tells them this, it's going to be better for you when I go because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to indwell your hearts. Sounds kind of crazy, huh? I would think that Jesus' bodily presence would be better for me. Jesus himself says that the Holy Spirit is going to unite you to the Heavenly Father and to me and indwell your hearts on a daily basis. And so you will have a better and greater ability to commune with God when I'm gone and the Holy Spirit's with you than you have while I'm here physically in your presence. That's the gift that all of us have been given if you're a follower of Jesus. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that's a gift that God wants to give you forgive you, redeem you, adopt you into his family, and then empower you with his Holy Spirit. 
supernaturally uniting you to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in, in a mysterious but wonderful way. God is always indwelling us and with us. We need to let that story shape our story. We need to let who Jesus is and what he's done, we need to make that so central to our lives that we can make sense of everything else. Because often what we make most important can, can really in the long term be trivial, and what we make trivial can often be the most important thing. How do we know? If we're finding significance in our stories in a larger story, in the context of what God's doing in the entirety of the world. God loves you and he's gifted you the way he's gifted you. Um, and he's given you the ability to get the job or to go after the goal that you're going after, right? That, that, God takes joy when you use your gifts to glorify him and you do things with excellence. But when you see your story written in the larger story, you can see that this particular job that you have right now, or maybe that you want, can that be the most important driving thing in your life if you see the larger story? It's not unimportant, but written into this larger story, it puts it in its context. The larger story of what God's doing with all humanity continually challenges us and reveals to us who God is and who we are and how we're supposed to live. So how is scripture shaping you? How is scripture shaping me? I think for uh, unfortunate reasons, we've disconnected the idea of actually following Jesus from faith. Faith has become, I make professions and I believe these things. But what we need to realize more and more is the time we spent with Jesus really should be looked like more as like an apprenticeship. What would it look like to sit at the feet of Jesus and to learn over time what it looks like to really love and to serve him and to know that, no, I'm not just supposed to be doing this intellectual thing. I'm supposed to be learning to love like he loves to forgive like he forgives. And so the reason we go to the word and immerse ourselves in God's word and read these stories is so they can shape us into understanding not only who Jesus was, but how he wants us to be. They shape us and they change us over time. And then that gives us the ability to respond to all the crap that comes with life in a way that we can make sense of it. Chuck Swindoll, a famous Texas preacher, had an old saying where he said that he believes that in his experience, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond. And if you respond knowing that you have the unconditional love of God, that he loves you fully as you fully are, if you see that, then that will begin to transform you and help you understand more thoroughly how you ought to live. We all need to have that road to Emmaus experience. And then having got that story, we need to have that road back experience. It emerges us, uh, puts us back in life and teaches us how to live. One of my uh, favorite discoveries in recent years has been the Africa Bible Commentary. It was a project spearheaded by John Stott, but it's a gathering of all these uh, scholars um, from Sub-Saharan Africa. And there's great insights into the scriptures that a lot of these people have because Sub-Saharan Africa is much more closely identified culturally with the world of the Bible than ours is. And especially the ability to get into suffering, all these different things. So if you're looking for another commentary, it's a whole Bible commentary called the Africa Bible Commentary, and I can't commend it enough. But here's a quote on this, on this passage from Isiaka Kulabali, who's a, from Cote d'Ivoire. He says this, Luke's story of Jesus has often been described as one of the most beautiful ever told. It is a story that advances our knowledge about who Jesus is one small step at a time. In the Old Testament and the Gospels, God's interaction with people is not conveyed by means of abstract or philosophical concepts, but through stories. The Bible is a collection of stories about individuals, families, communities, nations, and events, all of which unite to tell the overarching story of God's redemption of humanity. While Luke's story advances in small steps, it leaves behind deep, 
footprints regarding what it means to be children of God and truly human. It is ultimately a story of joy, the story of the good news. My prayer for all of us today is that those deep footprints of the story of who Jesus is would shape the way that we look at God, ourselves, and what God's calling us to do in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of Luke. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word, and we thank you that through the Holy Spirit, you make your word alive. Help us to trust you, help us to love you, help us to serve you with all that we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.